Yeah, the problem is by 20 past, Rob and I will have solved everything. Yeah, it'll be all over. I have a dream. This nation will rise up. Live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. In fact, when I spoke to President Zelensky, I said, Billie Jean King sends you her regards and wants to know how she can help. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This is the Ricochet Podcast. James Lilac is off this week. We have a long Ukrainian conversation with John O'Sullivan. Stay tuned. I can hear you! Hello and welcome to Ricochet Podcast number 584. Unbelievable. Oh, man. Uh, and I never thought we, this is a... You know, here this is our is it our is it our second wartime. Well, I'm not not really I'm trying to think, not quite. Our second war. How many wars? Yeah, how have many we wars have we uh, we podcasted? Um, uh, I'm Rob Long, uh, co-founder of Ricochet. I'm here in New York City. Join me as always is Peter Robinson in Palo Alto, California. Peter Robinson, how are you? I'm fine, Rob. I want to know some. Th- uh, well, James is away. Said, James is away. Uh, mysteriously away. I don't know. Do we even? I mean, I don't know if I even know officially where James is this week. Um, I think he's, he's taking it's spring break, and spring I think break. he's taking his daughter on a trip. Right. Hmm. Well, I'm sure we'll hear all about it. Um, so we're in the middle. Later on, we are view. We are being joined by our old friend, my old editor, John O'Sullivan, who a uh, former um, uh, editor in chief of National Review Magazine, now a, de- a, re- a resident denizen, citizen of the Middle Europe of Central Europe in uh, Budapest, Hungary. I visited him and his lovely wife and lives there many times. Um, we're going to get a perspective on that and what's happening in Ukraine. Um, but first, what were you going to say? I want to ask you a few questions. James is away. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's you and me. Yeah. And I've been trying to spin up a couple of writing projects. Ugh. And I thought to myself, you know, the person I know well, who in my all my circle of friends, who, as best I can tell, is just the best at compartmentalizing, at shifting from task hmm. to task to task, is my friend Rob Long. You, you hit your deadline for National Review every year for going on three decades now. You've got a uh-huh. column in commentary. You do this podcast. There are background calls people won't appreciate. And actually, I don't want to burden anybody with it, but there are a lot of phone calls that take place in the background to keep Ricochet up and running. And you're always, not all, yeah, you're pitching show ideas. You're keeping, you, you're feeding Hollywood. Yeah. That is just a lot to keep going. How do <laughs> well, you, I, I mean, truly, I do everything how do you do at a, if you do everything at a C minus level, you have time. If, if you throw out quality, <laughs> okay. I, look, you know, we have a pot. Self-deprecation have a, a, cuts we have no a medit- at the moment. We have a meditation app that is actually very helpful. Um, that kind of, you know, in between things, but really ultimately it isn't really, there's no way to do it. The answer is the answer is no, I don't hit my deadlines. If John Poritz was on here, he would be, um, not even laughing. I mean, I, it's not even this funny thing where you roll your eyes and you say, 
oh, you incorrigible you, it's angry. I mean, legitimately, legitimately anger at, at my inability to meet the deadline, um, which I'm trying to correct. It's a per- But I'm also trying to figure out how to do things more efficiently because if you have small little writing projects to do every day or yes. every week, yes. they will take entirely the entire week. And you will never get ahead on anything that is simply discretionary. So the stuff that I Correct. do that I really want to do, you know, I'm working on a play. I have a script I want to write. And um, so I'm not collaborating in any sense. Like, I don't have Zoom right. meetings with anybody. Right. Um, that stuff just gets pushed off. And it gets well, pushed wait off a minute. I thought you had the, the so, okay, so you've correctly, I mean, so neatly, I'm trying, succinctly yeah. identified the problem, which is the right. old, the old saw in business school is never let the urgent drive out the truly important, yeah, the merely the truly, urgent drive out exactly. the truly important. And that's uh, the problem you and I, writers like us face all the time. But uh, I thought yeah. you had it figured out. No, no. What I, what I, I'm, I'm moving towards right the idea that this podcast is the only appointment that I have on Thursday and Friday, the only thing I'm going to deliver, the only thing I have to talk to anybody else about, and I'm moving towards the Thursday because I, I you know, I teach now on Wednesday mornings. What are you so, teaching? I didn't know that. Oh yeah, I teach at NYU. I teach a class. I teach. I'm teaching twenty year old. I'm teaching sophomores in college. Peter. Peter, I'm hip with a youth. Don't you know? I'm down <laughs> with the youth and youth culture. It's a writing class in Tisch School. I'm filling in for somebody. They sort of they asked me to do it last year and I couldn't do it. Uh, and then I said, okay, I can do it this year. So I did it this year. Oh, uh, how kind of great. Fun. It's really interesting. So, um, so screenwriting or writing, writing, screenwriting, I'd rather be teaching writing, writing, but screenwriting. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. So I'm doing that. And that's, so that, that kind of breaks. So I'm trying to, 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 uh, um, quarantine to use the word that we love to use. I'm trying to lock down and quarantine all of the writing, the, 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 the freelance writing assignments I have to Mondays and Tuesdays. Uh, then I teach on okay. Wednesdays. Maybe something bleeds into Wednesday afternoon. That's okay too. Thursday, Friday, sacred. I do not, I will not write. I will not, I, I'm trying to actually not even respond to emails because all that stuff will take all day. Is it will. And if you just okay. don't do it um, and you say no to it, which is really hard uh, and I'm, I fail at it, but I'm trying. Um, uh, if you say no to it, um, you end up getting work done, and and uh, so so that that is that, that is my Lenten. Um, I mean, it's not a sacrifice. My Lenten commitment, which is to uh, is to um, give up the the distractions that I know are 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 enabling the worst part of me, which is to put off the stuff I really want to do, which is probably hard and a little riskier. And instead, uh, substitute that with some kind of, you know, it's not unproductive, but some kind of productive busyness, which really didn't need to take. I mean, if I'm delivering 650 words to the Washington Examiner every week, that's not an all-day project. 650 words is not an all-day project. Um. It's it can really, become an all-day project. It can become one, yes, right. And, oh, yes. You know, then you're looking yeah. up things up, and, oh, you know, and, I mean, yesterday, for some reason yesterday, I was, I, I got angry at somebody. Was, I mean, John O'Sullivan's here, so we would definitely want to have him on. But I, but I wanted to, uh, to get a historical perspective. I read some, some Europe, maybe it was the Prince William or somebody said, well, you know, it's so unusual to have this kind of war in Europe. We're used to it elsewhere, but not in Europe. Oh yes, right. Like I know he's right. young, right? But he's young. Yes, he so is. Where did yes. you know, one of his? I mean, I was you know, look, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, I, I was no, 
I'm, I'm a dyspeptic conservative. I was no fan of the people's princess necessarily. Um, I thought she was kind of a loon, but she was right about, she campaigned against certain kind of mines. I forget the kind of, kind of Claymore mines, some kind of mines. Uh, that sounds mines. right. That sounds right. Um, and, the, and she complained about it. She campaigned against them because they're, they're used in Yugoslavia. They're used in the Yugoslav wars. Right. And that was Europe. And that wasn't that long right. ago. And that was a bloody horrible war. 150,000 people died in that war. Right. Um, right. And, but so I was, I got, I got mad about it and I looked it up and now I'm looking it up and I'm looking up everything. And I'm like, so how do you pronounce Is it Srebrenica? Is it Srebrenica? Where was the safe area? And now I'm looking at the Bosniaks and who were they? And I'm like, oh, what? So the, the, the two of the war, uh, armies were like really, really closely named together. Um, and that took at least two hours. But and you became an expert. I did become an expert, a Wikipedia expert, and historical expert in in the in the Yugoslav War. But I, all I wanted to remind myself was that it was, like, it was a it was a major casualty war. There are still people in prison in the Hague for war crimes. Right. They, they they richly deserve to be exactly there. Um, right. And it happened on the doorstep, not the doorstep of Europe. It happened inside Europe, right. and Europeans and Americans, to be fair, waited until everyone was dead, and they had run out of munitions and money before we stepped in. Now, that may have been the right thing to do uh, strategically, um, as awful as that sounds, but that's what we did. Uh, so the idea that we could not turn around and go, oh, this is so unusual, it's not unusual at all. It's, if anything, right. it's par for the course. Anyway, thank I God feel, you're... I feel, uh, is I feel a minor out. impulse to stick up for Bill Clinton because we did go in by air. The true. United States true. did go that's in by true. air. Be, be quite, uh, uh, no big commitment of ground forces until the they'd run out of energy on the ground, but we did go in by air anyway. Okay. So like I, a lot of people, uh, like a lot of, uh, like a lot of, I guess certain presidents, Clinton never met a small um, deployment of a U.S. military that he would say no to. I mean, there, he, there are Marines everywhere under Clinton. It's also useful just to go through the, the, it's the so interesting. The, yeah. The uh, small anecdote, this will set up John, because John and I got to know each other when we were both speechwriters. He was writing for Thatcher when I was writing for Reagan. Ed Meese was in the Situation Room when President Reagan was being briefed on the one military action he authorized, the invasion of Grenada. And the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Jack v Vesey, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, gave the whole plan to the president, and then the president asked him one summary question. Tell me again how many troops and sailors are involved, and Jack Vesey named the number. And the president said, double it. If we're going to go in, we're going to go in quickly, and we're going to win. And that was so different. Eisenhower, the great general, during his eight years, we lost exactly one man to a sniper in Lebanon. Eisenhower put American troops on the ground briefly in Lebanon. And from Clinton on, presidents seem to have been very willing to engage in small bore conflicts. Yeah, I don't know whether you can. It's just interesting to watch the, the pattern, the sort of the area of focus. And we should get, we'll get John in here in a second. Yes, let's area get John of focus on. of actually, American foreign policy, right? So it starts, yes. you know, and, and, and Reagan, the, uh, you know, obviously a heroic president, the best president of certainly my lifetime. Um, you know, there was a 
You disaster. voted for him too, didn't you, Rob? I, I did not. I did not. I did not. That and what did he say when he learned that you voted for Walter <laughs> he Mondale? Said, well, you were one of the few, is what he said to me in a very pleasant way. He's, was, anyway, so he, you know, he made a terrible error. His, they made a terrible foreign policy error in Beirut in 1983. They certainly did. And they sort of learned their lesson, kind of. Um, and the next, I think, if I'm not right, the, if I'm not mistaken, the next biggest, the biggest next deployment of American forces was uh, in the uh, the late winter or the early, I think the late winter of, of uh, 1988 in Panama. Um, it was, I don't, I think it was still Vice President George W. H.W. Uh, Bush, I believe, mm-hmm. um, who uh, uh, ordered U.S. troops into Panama. Uh, and then, uh, and then, and then Clinton, and then there's a whole bunch of like a whole bunch of things. There was the, there was, um, Yugoslavia. And of course there was Black Hawk down, there was Somalia, there's all sorts of deployments. And when George W. Bush came in, he came in on with two big foreign policy moves, one or three, really one pivot to Asia. The pivot to Asia is George W., not Obama. Obama took it up too, but every president's tried to do it. Pivot to Asia. Benign neglect in the Middle East. That was the phrase. It was considered a controver- controversial time, benign neglect. And the third third one was, we don't do nation building. We uh, Americans don't do nation building. By September 12th, that had all been turned on its head. Um, it's just sort of interesting to watch the sort of Americans kind of grapple with what, what we can and cannot do in the world. Speaking of, uh, of uh, what we can do, what we can't do, Peter, 93% of your life is spent is spent indoors, but so many of our favorite moments are outdoors. The fresh air, the feeling of peace, since warmer weather is almost here, I guess, in some places. Uh, let's make the most of it with Outer, the new outdoor furniture company with purposely designed furniture to get you outdoors more. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials, and it's the only outdoor furniture with a patented built-in cover to make protecting it effortless. This is a huge, huge deal for those of us who have uh, decks on our roof in New York City and um, the first two weeks of spring are miserable. So teak chairs, fire pit tables, everything Outer makes has the look and feel of what you'd expect at a five-star resort for less than you'd pay at a big box store for something that won't even last. Outer's better because they spent years perfecting outdoor products after years of being disappointed at by expensive, yet poorly made products. Outer's team set out to make the world's most comfortable, durable, innovative, and sustainable outdoor furniture. So check out their virtual showrooms, or for you know people who are tired of ordering online, you can visit more than the 1,000 neighborhood showrooms across the country to see Outer difference in person, which I think is brilliant, right? I mean, I'm, I'm all right. Outer furniture comes with best-in-class warranties, 10 years for their aluminum line, a two-week trial with free read. Returns and you can see the difference at liveouter.com slash ricochet. So that's live, L I V E O U T E R.com slash ricochet. And for limited time, you get $300 off and free shipping. This is Outer's best offer anywhere. It's only available to podcast listeners like you and only for limited time. So get $300 off and free shipping at live, O U T E R, liveouter.com slash ricochet liveouter.com slash ricochet terms and conditions apply. We thank Outer for sponsoring the Ricochet podcast. And it is in fact a joy to think of spring and that soon I'll be sitting doing these podcasts outside 
with a cigar, the way God intended. Um, we are joined now by John O'Sullivan. He is the president of the Danube Institute, editor-at-large of National Review. That's where I met him, of course, and he was the editor-in-chief of National Review. Uh, he and his lovely wife, Melissa, have hosted me many times in Budapest, um, where they both sort of are the impresarios of the Danube Institute. We'll find out more about that. He is also, I mean, I don't know whether we have to, we should, we have to change your title, a commander of the Order of the British Empire. <laughs> That's so, right. Yes. Commander O'Sullivan is lovely to join us. And also, as we all know, uh, advisor to Margaret Thatcher, author of The President, The Pope, and The Prime Minister, uh, which um, seemed like a work of history, uh, in which the, uh, it was the, the, the triad of um, Reagan, Thatcher, and Pope John Paul II uh, joining together in a, a very, very complicated block. Uh, to destroy the Soviet Union now seems like that's what we need now. We need, we don't have really any of, well, we might have one of those three. Um, and we can talk about that later. John, welcome. To, how, how, so here's, here's my question. What's the mood in Budapest? Well, it's the mood of great anxiety, of course. Um, that's the principal mood across uh, Central Europe. Um, all of these countries are places in which tanks regularly roll through across to attack either the country itself or the country next door. And um, this has happened repeatedly, in the, particularly in two world wars, and again in 56, and again against the Poles in 1970, mm -hmm. and in 68 against the, uh, the, the, the Czechs who were ceasing to be communists and had to be brought back under control. So um, whenever that happens, it has generally has adverse effects on the neighborhood as a whole, and that's what terrifies them. I'd say they're particularly terrified about one thing, which is they don't like talk of changing the borders of anywhere unless everyone is agreed that the borders right. will be changed. Otherwise, they just think it's going to lead to some further conflict down the road. Uh, so, but in Budapest, um, the, the, the president of Hungary, Viktor Orban, has been a theoretical supporter of Putinism, I'll say, Putin-ish kind of behavior. The, 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 I, mean, I may be wrong, correct me. It does seem like it does seem like Viktor Orban, along with certain American conservatives, have discovered that the idea of Vladimir Putin, which seems sort of attractive in, in some ways, is very different from the reality of Vladimir Putin. So is that changing? Is the the slight tilt to Putin and Putinism uh, changing or do I have it all wrong as usual, John? I think you have it all wrong. I won't add it. <laughs> But, uh, I'll add as usual. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you have it all wrong. Um, the policies that or, that Viktor Orban has pursued towards the Soviet Union are based, it seems to me, solidly upon prudence. Uh, it's a big country next door. Um, obviously has, and he saw this some time ago. The rest of us see it now. It obviously has unresolved ambitions in relation to the neighborhood. And that became crystal clear, um, I think, in November last year, when the Russians sent the, the Americans, the Washington, this demand to completely rewrite the end of the Cold War, to reverse uh, the result of the Cold War. Uh, and in fact, one of the demands, the most obvious one of 
causing anxiety here, of course, is that all the countries which joined NATO after 1997 would have to leave NATO. That's what they want. Now, obviously, that includes Hungary. It includes um, the Czech Republic. It includes Slovakia. It includes Poland. And um, they joined NATO in the first place because they were frightened of the Russians. And what the Russians that were demanding only last month, and it's that demand is still on the table, right. um, that demonstrates the legitimacy and the realism of that anxiety. And what all the dif- the only big difference that um, Orban makes has made um, to that policy. And he this brings him into slight difference with the Poles, is that the Poles are more convinced that, that Putin had was determined to change things and more worried about that. In the case of Hungary, Hungary basically thought, well, the Poles were occupied in the 19th century um, by the Russians. And right. we have, they were not. I mean, this country, Austria-Hungary, was, was this was part of Austria-Hungary. Right. And that wasn't, in fact, occupied by the, by the, uh, the Russians and is, is never part of their near abroad, really. So the kind of atmosphere of let the Russians have some some control of some kind over their near abroad, bad though that idea is, doesn't even apply to Hungary. So I think he thought, and I think he thought rightly in a way, the best way to deal with this was to always to be a member of NATO. He's very clear about that. To support NATO when it was, uh, and and the EU, when they reached a decision, to be part of that decision. Sometimes, of course, they didn't want a particular decision, but they always went along with it. And at the same time, do their best to be reasonably friendly in a diplomatic way with, uh, with, uh, and to deal with uh, the Russians and with Putin. Well, it seems to me that's although that is portrayed by his domestic opponents as being pro-Putin, doesn't seem to me to be anything other than what conservatives normally recommend in foreign policy, namely prudence, prudence, and, and sort of playing the hand that you're dealt, John. Yeah, Peter. Could, could I step back to two days before the invasion? And I want to ask you about rights and wrongs here, mm-hmm. because it bears on what happens next or what we should do next. And in this country, there's a debate. Well, you're well aware of this. There's, there's always been a debate over NATO. But now that the Russians have moved in, it's very sharp. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, you've got the position, in my judgment, most brilliantly advocated by Stephen Kotkin, Mm. that this is Vladimir Putin's fault, that we didn't prompt them by Mm. expanding NATO, that the expansion of NATO was necessary because of Russian history and Russian intentions. The causality Mm. ran, Russia bad, we took action to defend. The the opposite view, and it really is quite sharply opposite, this is not a question of nuance, is is what I'll call the Mearsheimer view. You're aware of John Mearsheimer, very distinguished political scientist, University of Chicago. We are not talking about a crank. We're talking about a very distinguished figure within the field. And he argues that Russia is Russia. And political realities must be taken into account. And for a thousand years, under czars and communists, and now under Vladimir Putin, they have felt nervous to the point of what looks to us like paranoia about their western flank that the expansion of nato 
Incidentally, I found quotation. I did an interview with John with Stephen Kotkin the other day. George Kennan warned about this when we expanded NATO in 1998. He was an old man, but he warned about it. Henry Kissinger, when the Russians moved on the Crimea, Henry Kissinger said that put in print that the West must understand that Ukraine can never be simply a foreign country to Russia, so that we sinned against prudence. We sinned against prudence and in one way or another brought this on ourselves. Now, all of this is relevant hmm. because the question now is, how firmly do we oppose the, the Russians in Ukraine? But, but take that, that, that debate that's going on right now. Where does John O'Sullivan come down? Uh, well, first of all, I would distinguish between the debate about were we justified in expanding NATO um, in re in relation to the period from uh, eight, 1989 to 2010. Uh, so when you get people, um, most of the countries, uh, but not Ukraine as members right. of NATO. The, the Baltics um, join in uh, in 2004, as I recall. That's the last big influx of members. Isn't that right? Right, but I, I yes. Um, so Hungary they, in 1998, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia in 2004. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Now, um, I listened to Steve Kotkin's d discussions with you, by the way, which I thought were brilliant. And generally speaking, I would be on that side of the argument. I would mm -hmm. certainly be on that side of the argument. And I suspect Henry Kissinger and others would be as well, not all of them. Um, and who, who favoured expanding NATO to a considerable point, but not to the point of Ukraine. Uh, because Ukraine is a different matter. But first of all, you must remember that we expanded NATO, not because we were pushing NATO membership on Poland, uh, Yugos, um, sorry, Poland, um, Hungary, Slovakia, uh, and then later Romania uh, and Bulgaria and so on, because, but because those countries were clamoring to come in. I mean, I covered right. that both as a journalist, but also because I helped to start something called the New Atlantic Initiative, which actively uh, lobbied to try to persuade this to, to, to occur. And, um, and one of the people who was involved in that, um, uh, at the outset, was Henry Kissinger. Another was Margaret Thatcher, and so on. So there was a, an anxiety at a certain point in the mid-1990s that somehow or other there was going to be be really big problems emerging from Eastern and Central Europe. And it wasn't just, uh, and, the, and at that point, NATO um, was seen as an organization with which Russia wanted to cooperate. So mm, the expansions right. of NATO, first of all, though, were the result of people clamoring to get in, not, the, not um, NATO members forcing NATO upon them. On the contrary, that you had to persuade the West Europeans particularly, less the Brits, but uh, to allow them in. I was taken, I mean, many a time at these conferences, somebody would put a fatherly arm around my shoulder and say, um, look, John, we're never going to let any of these people in. French diplomats said to me at a conference in Vilnius, in which launched the Vilnius Declaration in uh, 1998, I think, he said to me, um, look, at most one of these countries is going to get into NATO. Well, in fact, they all got in. Why? Because there was a sense that this was something that had to be done, that this was, a, this was an area which had been in the past difficult and explosive, the cause of, mm. uh, of the First World War, in a sense. We had to bring these countries in. And um, secondly, um, that the Russians themselves at that point were not terribly opposed to this. I mean, they, 
some people made pro forma resistance. But the general idea at the time, and this is something we should consider, um, was the Russians thought maybe we'll be in the in NATO ourselves. That's certainly what Yeltsin asked for. Um, Putin himself at a later uh, stage said the same thing. Now, they couldn't be admitted in the period we're talking about. There was no chance of it because, of course, the other new members of NATO were in NATO to defend themselves <laughs> right. against the of Russia. So right. you couldn't let the fox in the hen house. Right. Down the road, well, that was a real possibility, I thought and hoped, and it was something that some of the Russians certainly uh, played with that idea. Why? What would have had to happen? Well, I think two things. Um, first of all, in in order for the people in NATO, the new members, to accept the Russians, they would have had to have been satisfied that they had given up their great Rus- greater Russia neo-imperial ambitions. That was absolutely key. Um, in 19, uh, 1991, the Russian, Russian leaders were saying, we want to be a normal country. Well, a normal country doesn't have constant desire on its neighbours. And the second thing was, so that would have, if they'd done that, um, then you could see down the road, not right away, but down the road, Russians coming in. Now, what might persuade them to do that? Well, I always thought, and I wrote this in some places, the um, what would change things for the Russians would be the rise of China. The rise of China was obviously on the cards. It's not something we only realized the other day. It's been happening steadily. And particularly, we saw it not as a threat to the West at the time, but as a threat to Russia, because it shares this long border with Russia. On one side of the border, you don't have much. On the other side, you have a self-confident, new, modernizing country. And when you look at the border, you can see very clearly which is Russia, which is China. And so you could see down the road an area uh, of Central Asia, which is so, and the north, the north of that, is so rich in minerals and um, and things like timber, that mm-hmm. would be uh, a prize which might cause the two countries to fall out in a big way. And when that even began to look like happening, the Russians might well see NATO as another protection. And we thought in those circumstances, it would be easier for them to give up their great power ambitions in order to, to achieve real security. Now, that never happened uh, in the way that I think it might have done. Um, but it was part of the calculation of many people. And you must remember, there were a lot of agreements which the Russians themselves signed with NATO. They did yes. sign a treaty, a, a kind of semi-alliance. And it was it was the repository of hopes rather than real commitments at that time. But nonetheless, it was real enough. And in the optimistic spirit of those times, it was possible to think of what I was just describing, mm-hmm. namely NATO becoming the something like a more powerful uh, OS, an organization of security and cooperation in Europe, but with real weapons, real armies and nuclear weapons. And in those circumstances, things would be very, very different. Now, that's all not. That's all gone wrong. What? What of the and the, and Ukraine has since become independent, and that, that independence was initially something that the Russians were. I don't suppose they were overjoyed with, but nonetheless uh, they accepted it. And indeed, the Budapest Memorandum, in which the Ukraine Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in return for guarantees from three powers. Those three powers included Russia as well as Britain and the United States. So it was a very different state of affairs. 
And um, I've no doubt that we on our side contributed to the deterioration. We were all, this was terra incognita. We didn't, we were finding our way in a new world. But the major change, surely, was the change from Yeltsin to Putin. The change of somebody who, in a sense, had given up not only on Bolshevism and the, and the Soviet Union, but given up on hostility to the West, which, as it turns out, um, Putin had not. And so, um, so, so John, if, if I, so that brings us to the crux of the debate, really. Mearsheimer, or the Mearsheimer position, I don't want to put words in his mouth. Sure. The Mearsheimer position is they were, they were coming in our direction. They were wriggling their way out from under a thousand years of history, and it was all going to work out, could have worked out, just as you yourself supposed. And then we began to threaten them. We made them nervous. And Kotkin says, nonsense, it was Putin. Well, I tend to, um, first of all, I don't, uh, I, I don't despise anything that John Mearsheimer says. I think right. he obviously is a, a very important commentator on this. I think I differ from him, but um, you, you have to concede. He knows a great deal about it. His judgments have got to be examined carefully and, and uh, so on. Now, uh, the same is true of Stephen Kotkin. And since they're on opposite sides, we really have to choose between two well-fortified well yes. in intellectual positions. Um, my own feeling is that Stephen Kotkin is right, and the case he makes in his discussions with you, and I would urge other people to, to look at them. Um, they're very interesting. Uh, two, two long sessions of about an hour and a quarter or something like that. Um, he, he is making, I think, a common sense point um, uh, uh, in this way. Um, he's saying, look, um, Russia started in Kiev, as we originally, uh, as we now, uh, as we know uh, now, it, it expanded consistently over centuries. Um, and at every stage, it was terrified it was going to, uh, in a sense, be the subject of attack. Now, as we know, it's very foolish to attack Russia, because there's a hell of a lot of it. And as you, <laughs> and as they retreat, and as the Russians retreat from an initial success, um, you, the Russians, are able to organize and get back in the game and deal uh, terrible blows to them. The two obvious case, well, the three obvious cases being, of course, the uh um, uh, the, the Napoleon, Napoleon, Hitler. Uh, Napoleon right. and Hitler. Um, First World War is a slightly more ambiguous case because, of course, um, under the under the uh, rule of the Bolsheviks, um, they sued for peace. Um, right. But, right. And, and so the, the the change, the end of the war was, in a sense, not determined by by Russia by a Russian victory there. Now, um, so you have to say, first of all, if you're a medical man, the idea that paranoia can be dealt with by a peace it is a mistake that uh, paranoid simply reinterprets uh, your assurances and even your concessions as a more clever way of dealing uh, death and destruction to it and that is a common sense way of looking i think at what um at what at the claims of russia to be always protecting itself against attack yes it has uh, been attacked from the west and uh, yes the, it has it, it has occupied large areas of uh, of Russia, uh, of of Western Europe as sorry of Europe as well. I give you two examples. One was Lenin's attempt to uh, take over Poland in 1919, yes. uh, which was defeated, and of course, um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the second one. But um, <laughs> but the fact is, you don't 
you don't have to uh, think that the Russians are, in a sense, um, deluded when they feel uh, when they fear it. Uh, um, attack. Uh, obviously, a great power always feels an attack, feels attack. Uh, and uh, there's no way you can always provide absolute security against that feeling. But you're going to feel under, under threat if you yourself live on threats to other countries. And yes. the Russians um, have again and again showed of the, um, the people around them, and they're still showing this. I mean, in, in uh, that, that they don't regard them as genuinely independent. It's not just the, um, it's not just Ukraine. Uh, the Baltics uh, are themselves uh, have the sense that if things go badly for them, the Russians will will move in. Um, right. the, the, there are frozen conflicts all around the borders of Russia. Russia troops, in, Russia intervenes frequently in these cases or gives assistance or provides what are known as peacekeeping forces, which actually serve the interests, obviously, of the Russian government more than of the two forces, the two countries where its right. forces are placed. And, and, and at the moment, let me just give, I think, what's the most interesting example. Um, we think of the central, the stands now as being free from Russia. And yet the other day, there was a clear exercise of Russian power that essentially stabilized the position of Kazakhstan as a subordinate member of the, not the Russian Federation, but of the uh, Eurasian body of which the Russian Federation is the real expression. So, John, I'm sorry, I have to ask one more question. Rob is quite rightly champing at the bit to get <laughs> back in here. But I have to ask I, one more question. I really, truly... You're the man who's going to make me understand this, if anyone can. Russia did have a chance. Yeltsin, the oligarchs, they thought they all experienced the joys of getting rich. There was a moment when the Duma seemed to be a truly, not in the, they, they weren't turning themselves into Belgium and a peaceable welfare state. But there was a moment in the 90s when the, and it looked as though the Duma really would be a decision-making body, that they were going to become a normal country. And the bit that's so hard for me to understand, and I think for Americans in general, is why when they have, we live a wonderful way, why don't they want to live the way we live? Why don't they want to become normal? Why did Putin revert to this thousand-year-old pattern, which is just miserable for them and inflicts misery on all their neighbors? Why? Well, first of all, there were some terrible economic disasters in the 1990s for Russia, which, um, which created enormous unrest and, and discontent in the population. Um, something the people's savings, in, when, when you had a ruble reform, their savings became not entirely worthless, but were much reduced. Um, the, 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 it took some time for the, for the shock therapy that the Russians voluntarily accepted upon themselves uh, to, to work at all. And it still hasn't worked in any way. 
as good as as well rather as the as the situations in Poland, which has done very well in the Czech Republic, in Hungary. All of these places are now manifestly better off, more richer societies, um, with a higher standard of living, even for the poor people in them. Um, and that that did not happen for a long time in Russia, and it gave it gave Putin and the so-called Siloviki, the the securocrats, we would call them in Northern Ireland, um, the the people who who rose, and there's a very important point here, and it relates to um, Jean Kirkpatrick's distinction between uh, totalitarian and authoritarian governments. Um, when uh, Russia too went democratic in 1990, people said Jean and Poland before that, people said that Jean's distinction had proved false, and yet what you see, I think, when you look at societies that had experienced communism for only a short time and superficially um, with the Soviet Union, which had experienced it for 70 years. I think you see a distinction. The totalitarian societies, um, well, sorry, the authoritarian societies, I should say, um, they were interested only in the political elite uh, and the military elite. If you took control of a country, um, uh, they, uh, an author, no, Franco or, or, or indeed, um, 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 Pinochet. They they didn't, in a sense, go about uh, recreating elites, which were communist ones or authoritarian ones, in every area of life. They were just concerned with getting, keeping power. Now, in the Soviet Union, for 70 years, you had people who thought that the Communist Party had the answer to everything. It knew the best way to um, produce a ballet. It knew the best way to write symphonies. It knew the best way to run an army. It knew the best way to run agriculture. Well, that was the catastrophe, of course, the running of agriculture. Russia became a country, Soviet Union became a country that imported uh, grain rather than producing it. So um, the conclusion from that was if you, an authoritarian company becomes democratic, a few people go to jail, but then life goes on um, for the rest of the society. But in a totalitarian country, if that goes down, Democratic. All of a sudden, Everything. what you have is a lot of headless chickens yeah. um, in, in the rest mm. of life. And, and therefore, the people who really took power at the end of the day in the, the former Soviet Union in Russia were the KGB. This is a KGB regime. And that's, or now they call themselves the FSB, but that's what it is. And that's what it is across the uh, Central Asia as well, the former stands. I mean, that those are the yeah. The original strongmen who built themselves palaces and statues right. and put their faces on the currency. Yeah. And then in, in the case of Turkmenistan, their mother's face is on the currency. Um, <laughs> she, she was the, the mother of the country for a long time. Um, okay, so John, you just did this tour d'horizon from uh, Harbin, China, the old Russian uh, capital in China, uh, to, uh, I mean, past Budapest. I think we were in Berlin or Hamburg at some point. Um, so let's just start from on the West. Are, uh, do the Estonians have something to worry about? Oh, I think that, the, the, well, whether they have something to worry about, all the Baltic states are worried. They're all worried. So, I mean, and it's, I mean, we, we, have, we have operated under this, I mean, depending on, I mean, even on, no matter what side you're on, we've been operating under this theory that, well, you know, say this about Putin. He knows what he's doing canny, savvy operator. 
That's what they that's what the the Democrats said about the, the brilliant Putin because he had uh, Trump by the uh, short hairs. And that's what, even what Trump said later. Yeah, he's a savvy operator. But he manages he's managed to accomplish something that no American president could, which is not only to rearm Germany, but to steal the resolve and the defensive resolve of the, the former satellite nations of the Soviet Union against him. I mean, how explain how he wins. Well, first of all, uh, I don't think he's stupid. Um, no. In this case, he's um, because until now, most of the risks he's taken have been have paid off. I mean, he he went into Georgia that we kicked up a right. fuss about it. It paid off. He went, but he didn't. He, he he. But it, what he did in Georgia was essentially what he did. He did two things in Georgia. I was there, two thousand eight. He yes. did essentially he did. two things. One, he did the he did the he he took a sliver of land. That was that he could legitimately hold because they were Russian speaking and they didn't really identify with the country of Georgia. And he tattooed bombs by taking off from airfields in Armenia and and uh, and Russian uh, air, uh, Russian airfields, tattooed bombs a- around the BTC pipeline, not didn't bomb the pipeline. He just said, look, this is what I can do. Well, guess, guess what I'm going to do when I really want to. Um, he chose not to do that here. Well, it was the first postmodern war because I think you, as well as I, were sitting in cafes. Uh, <laughs> well, that's that's uh, always no, the case. No, no, hang on a second. Uh, I was, this was uh, two days after they'd gone in. Um, I'm sitting in Tbilisi in a cafe uh, at, at one in the morning or something, um, having a late dinner. And um, uh, 11 miles away or kilometers away, there are the Russians. And life is going on extraordinarily right. normally. Um, it, I, I was kind of both relieved and shocked by, by this. There's a, there's a party atmosphere, maybe because the Russians have actually stopped and aren't still coming in, but nonetheless, a very odd atmosphere. Um, now, what are you arguing that? Um, I would argue here that that like Hitler, um, he was he's calculated very intelligently in all these cases. He's presumed as each as each action he's taken um, has succeeded. That his that he's weakened the resolve at each stage. That they'll do. They might do something about Georgia. We don't. They might right. do something about Crimea. Right. We don't. We don't. Yeah, and so he thinks at each stage. Well, I've taken a, a risk here, and it's paid off. I'll take a bigger risk here, and the likelihood is it will pay off. It, it, in and retrospect, it has not paid off. In retrospect, should we have done something in Georgia and Crimea? Well, it probably would. We should have done. In fact, I think the Americans probably would have done, except Sarkozy, who was at that mm-hmm. time the um, uh, the, the um, rotating president of the European Union, nipped into Moscow before uh, George Bush or anyone else could and did a deal um, which was fundamentally favorable to, um, to, to Putin. I mean, for example, the Russians had never carried out the terms of that deal on the ground in, in Georgia. And, um, and so the Americans were, in a sense, stymied if they wanted to take a stronger line. And I'm not sure that they would, but they might have done. Now, so so are, are, are we being... A- you know, depending on what 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 you read, right? This yeah. is always the problem, uh, and I'm sure that the uh, Russian casualties are being. I, I'm sure I don't I have no evidence of this, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. The Russian casualties are being overstated. That the uh, um, Ukrainian victories are being overstated. Um, I'm sure that there are parts in Ukraine where you could still sit in a cafe at one in the morning and and. Maybe go about your normal life, not quite the way Tbilisi mm-hmm. was in 2008, but close. Um, 
I guess what I'm saying is, do you think that Putin is, and the sort of the Russian decision maker makers, who I think are really mostly him, are surprised at this? Do you, well, do you think they were aware that they had escalated beyond the stair step, uh, the uh, the wisdom of the stair step, just a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and before you know it, we turn around and the frog is boiling? It seems well, like this I, is a big, big step. If, if, if you're talking about the reaction, the reaction of the West, um, they did. But why is that? Uh, they did miscalculate, but why is that? And the answer is because nobody expected the Ukrainians to be quite as successful in delaying the Russians right. and indeed at points defeating them and at demonstrating to everybody in a way that's undeniable to even the most skilled Kremlin propagandist that they are a real nation, that they are not a gang of drug, what he called them drug takers and neo-Nazis. Yeah, right. and, and well, they are, they have come together in a way that many people, I, I would say possibly John Mersheimer, would not really have expected, um, because I would have thought his view of Ukraine as partly Russian in its soul, uh, um, which is also the view of Solzhenitsyn, for example, um, would, would have led him to expect a lesser resistance. This right. resistance is very strong. The, uh, well, uh, I'm going back to sort of the, what the, the sort of the takeaway in, sort of in the in the war colleges when they were uh, trying to sum up the failures in Vietnam, they came yeah. up with this adage, you can't want it more than they do. And so the idea is that we can't want a free Ukraine more than the Ukrainians do. And the Ukrainians have shown mm. that they want it more than anyone, which is actually appropriate, right? It's um, appropriate. And furthermore, it makes it very difficult for us to sell them out if we choose to do so. For now, are we going to? Um, I, How do we well, get out you of could, this? You could, you could say... Um, you could say that the failure to provide either um, a no-fly zone or to allow them to be given planes to defend themselves by the poles is a kind of a sellout. Um, and certainly one of the things that's happened in this campaign so far is a change in deterrence doctrine. Uh, we used to say, I'm sure Peter particularly will remember this, that you, you couldn't attack a country which had nuclear weapons. You couldn't attack it conventionally because they had nuclear weapons. And now we're beginning to say, if a country has nuclear weapons, you can't resist it either. Uh, because if you were to go in to resist it, they might use the nuclear weapons. I don't think they would, and I think this argument is false. But there's no doubt that there's been, so to speak, a new red line, one red line erased and another one behind it uh, painted. And that red line is the, uh, the, the when you can the meaning of deterrence. All right. So let's just get this. Get, we're, so we're, we're talking about two things, right? Uh, two different provocations. They're, and they are, um, they are, they are, they, 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 they amplify as you go up. The small provocation, which I mean, I'm using the term provocation from the Russian perspective, yeah. is the delivery of MiG fighter jets <laughs> used yeah. vintage Russian warfare uh, equipment. From in some strange handoff from Poland to the United to an airfield, then to the Ukraine, and that was we we as Americans decided not to do that because that would be too much of a provocation. Um, and then the secondary provocation, which is sort of much much more by a factor, much much more intense, which is the um, imposition of a no fly zone above Ukraine. The argument against both of those things is we don't want to escalate this war because if we escalate it, it will go nuclear. And you're saying they're never going to 
press the button. Not saying no one will ever press the button. I am saying that if you attack, if a country attacks another country and a third country employing either right. an alliance, not in this case, or the right of a country to request assistance under the UN Charter, um, where, um, um, which is a, a right and which was the basis right. of our intervention in Vietnam, or your you know, American intervention in Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. Who's this we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's right. But, but, um, <laughs> uh, I was I was a sympathizer with the Americans on that very strongly. Um, so um, uh, so once you've um, if you say to them, well, we used to say um, um, that have to you, you we used to say we would intervene in this case, um, and now we say uh, we can't do so because of nuclear weapons. And then they they say, by the way, uh, those arms you were sending uh, in, well, we. We've tolerated that. We haven't used nuclear weapons because you're sending in arms, but we that's might use problem. nuclear weapons if you send in planes. Now, th now that's, I don't think, the Russian logic at all. It's the Western logic that there's more and more things we can't do if you have a sufficiently ruthless enemy. Now, if that's the case, tell me why you are so certain if you're... Um, uh, if you're a Lithuanian or an Estonian, you know, why are you so certain that the West might say, well, um, there's just been an attack, the Russian troops have crossed the line right. into Estonia, um, and um, of course, what can we do? we're against that, and uh, we are not going to do, we, we can't use nuclear right. weapons, and therefore um, it wouldn't make sense to send in troops to assist the Lithuanians, we will make a big fuss at the UN. In other words, once you begin to tell people in advance, we'll do nothing if you do that. At that point, you put the Lithuanians, the Estonians, and the Latvians more and more at risk. Now, so, there, is there, there, an guess, there is an answer to that, by the way. Right. The answer is very simple. What you have to do now uh, is build up the conventional forces of all these countries and, right. and plant our troops and, and, and people there in various ways so that a conventional resistance can win not simply um, delay the Russian victory, which seems to be the calculation is what's that's what's going to happen now in um, in in. Um, so, uh, uh, all right. So just 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 so I understand, I know you have to run. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it's late there. So just, I'm, I, I, we're, we're, we're eating into your cocktail hour, John. I'm from I, I, I've been with you in, in Budapest. It's um, uh, uh, you don't feel. Or, or, or I, I, let me ask you, do you think that the people who say, well, listen, a no-fly zone in Ukraine is World War III, are they um, hysterically terrified? Are they, uh, do they need to get, uh, you know, to man up a little bit? Um, are they reading the room wrong? Um, or are they unwilling to pay the price you need to pay? Well, but, so is he going to, I mean, we, we know that, that the Putin, Putin's threatened it. Pretty much, and, and, well, and, no, he and hasn't. Not... we've said he's threatened it, but his, in what he's done is he's actually issued dark threats of a King Lear kind, um, and I will <laughs> okay. you know, bring such uh, destruction on you all as you cannot imagine. He hasn't actually threatened to use nuclear weapons. We've then said, ah. He's going to use nuclear weapons. He mm -hmm. has established until now, I think it's breaking down, he has established a kind of psychological dominance 
uh, against against us. And the things we're now sensibly doing, like Europe coming together and deciding it's going to seriously resist this one way or another, is a sign that that dominance is breaking down. But we're not so afraid, and we're not so afraid because the Ukrainians have so far fought the Russians I don't say right. to a standstill, but they've dis- they've really demonstrated the Russian army is not something to be despised at all. But it's not something that it's not ten feet composed of people right. ten right. feet. Right. So, um, National Security Advisor John O'Sullivan. Oh yes. Um, you think that we should come up with some way to give the Ukrainians planes they can fly? Oh, yes, that's what that would be the thing I would now support. And I think that's right. Do, would yes. you support a no fly zone? Well, at this point, probably not, because we have this other step to okay. uh, to take. We have a step we can take before that. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't support it um, gladly anyway, so to speak. It's not to, right, something right. I would, would want to recommend. It is dangerous. But at the same time, um, there, are, and there are many other things we can do. For example, the Russians are very extended in in these, um, what they call them, uh, frozen conflicts. Um, we could certainly uh, supply arms. They're, they're bringing in people from Chechnya. Yeah. We could right. certainly supply arms to, and, and help and training of various kinds to the to the bandits that they have re- repressed and suppressed there. Um, they, I mean, it's not something I'm proposing. I'm just suggesting. No, no I, I see. There, there, we there are weak do. points. All right, so and, uh, my, my, since you brought up um, um, Georgia, which I think is... An interesting, I mean, the 2008 interesting watershed moment. Um, all all eyes are on Ukraine. Some Eastern European eyes are on Putin, mm-hmm. but they must also be on us and what we're doing and what, yeah. what resolve we have and what resolve the the countries to the West have. In the same way that Japan and Taiwan are now, and I think. President Xi is looking and saying, "Well, look, the the price of taking over Taiwan just got much higher." Mm. Not by any direct calculation, but by an indirect, I think, back of the envelope math would suggest mm. that now is not the time. Now is not the time. And so your previous point, Rob, that um, the, the Chinese have got to convince themselves that they want Taiwan more than the Taiwanese want to deny it to them. Right. And that would suggest that the Chinese uh, playbook will be something along the lines of what they've been doing anyway, which is to simply bolster up their political arm in Taiwan and their political allies in Taiwan until maybe Taiwan votes in a party that's a reunification party and they start talks and, you know, in 50, 60 years, it's back, which is the Chinese can wait 50, 60 years. It's only the West that thinks 50 or 60 years is a long time. Um, So so let me ask you, so, so... I don't believe this idea that the Chinese uh, are, are mystical long term. <laughs> okay, right, right. I right, mean, right. Uh, I think this uh, they're like us, you know. They want to win. All right. Yeah. I, fair, fair point. Uh, <laughs> so um, uh, there's not much we can do uh, about Putin, and there's not much we can do about uh, the defenses of Putin. You know, again, those countries have to want it more than we do. What are we? What? What? What is this? A moment? What? What? How would you describe the moment? for American leadership abroad at a time when the American people are theoretically behind Ukraine, but do not want another foolish war. Uh, they certainly don't on both, both parties do not want, and I'm not, I'm not talking about America first, but I mean, they do not want an adventure abroad. The Iraq war was a mistake and a disaster, and they don't want to do that again. Um, 
how 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 should an how in an ideal American uh, White House, what how do you show leadership, and how is this White House succeeding or failing at that? Well, I will answer that question, but I just want to make a point about <laughs> okay. President Z. President Z. It seems to me President Z um, is also someone who is looking um, not so far sighted at the moment. Um, yeah. And the Agreed. reason is that you know he's he's the uh, he's the man who's taken a very successful strategy of subverting the West by um, buying their goods, um, being friendly, and by and large right. giving a false impression. And now he's faced with the with the fact that we're onto his game, and he's lost the ability to charm us, and therefore he's lost the ability to provide easy victories for his people. Now. Uh, well, I'd say I'd say I'd just say that she is is Putin's most recent mark. February fifth, yes. yeah, was a was a, a con game for him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think we should make the same mistake with India. I think we should say to the Indians, um, we recognize that you're abstaining on the vote against Russia. Uh, was quite a big deal for you as opposed to supporting Russia because the, you have, the Russians have been your solid supporters for a long time. And so, you know, we're giving you a pass. That would be my the way I would handle that, probably more diplomatically, um, if I was somebody else. And, um, and then uh, now what about what, what should um, Joe Biden do? Well, of course, um, you know, like the old Irish joker, I wouldn't start with Joe Biden if I could possibly arrange for another president to be doing it. But <laughs> it seems right. to me, you got to uh, dance with the president that brought you. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So what what we should do is this, or what uh, you and the Brits and the others should do is go to Europe and say, look, there has to be a new deal in NATO. Uh, uh, it really has to be. Not only we, we are, we don't want the um, uh, the NATO to to. We don't want strategic um, independence for Europe. We uh, for uh, yeah, strategic. I'm forgetting the phrase, but anyway, it essentially means the ability to act completely independently of the United States. We don't want that because we don't believe in it. We don't believe you'll ever spend that amount of money. We don't believe you'll ever get that amount of unity within Europe. So we want to keep NATO structures alive, but reinvigorate them, and that means we work out a really much. We we work with you on the kind of spending everybody is going to be doing in defense. It's going to be more for everybody, but it's got to be distributed intelligently. And there have to be greater participation and involvement of um, um, European troops. And uh, there has to be the ability of Europe to transport its own people. They can't always rely upon American C-34s or whatever the planes are called. So um, I'm, I'm, um, th- th- this is a serious operation. It's doing, it's reinventing NATO and doing it in a way that doesn't create um, two potentially hostile powers. Um, the, 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 we don't want um, a Europe uh, cooperating with an America. We want a NATO in which all of the powers give as much as they can, but they, are, but they work on to common plans and common long-term strategic plans. And finally, there has to be, um, to 
just to offset the pull that the concerns for Asia ex now exert on American policy, there has to be a revived Atlantic politics. It's not good enough to have a revived European politics. There has to be a revived Atlantic politics, the kind of common spirit that united NATO and uh, Europe and America in the 50s and the 60s. I mean, it started to go wrong in the 70s. And although Reagan revived it considerably, he... It, it was, uh, I think, somewhat superficial revival. The moment that um, the West had won the Cold War, uh, the, the tensions and fissures between the two sides of the Atlantic began to uh, re-emerge seriously. And I think that that's something that the statesmen have got to tackle. And uh, I think that at the moment, um, uh, there are some, there are serious thinking going on from uh, Johnson, from um, um, President Macron. Uh, now it turns out from um, Chancellor uh, Olaf Scholz, who is right. by any standard saying new and important things. But we <laughs> staggering, staggering. Yes. But yeah. will they persist? I mean, that's the key, right. isn't it? You can't. Uh, you can't. When, when once you know the headlines are no longer of Russian planes destroying um, hospitals and cities. Uh, in Ukraine, we, when that has stopped happening, however, whatever the outcome, we don't want that spirit to just disappear. It will not be as as kind of as fiery and as um, outraged as it is now, but it must be a decision and not simply an emotion. John, could I ask a last question? And I'm not, I'm going to flop around on this one. I don't, I'm not quite sure how to formulate it, but you'll you'll see what I'm trying to get at. My old friend Yuri Yarim Agaev, who was a member of the Hels Moscow Helsinki group, once said to me, you Americans are essential in Europe because you're the only ones who aren't afraid of the Russians. Okay. So I remember that as recently as 1986, I think it was, when Pat Buchanan sent me on some cockamamie leadership tour, I was in a then-communist... Budapest. And what was so striking, we traveled the country, you couldn't see a Soviet soldier anywhere. Yeah. And then at two in the morning, one night, a Soviet convoy rumbled through the streets of Budapest. They were there. And they reminded people in subtle ways that they were there. So the question is this, and it is within the living memory of Orban's parents that Hungary was an occupied country. It is in the living memory of Scholz's grandparents that the Russians leveled Berlin. The Battle of Berlin. I remember having a conversation with Sid Drell, a nuclear physicist, and, and his rough estimate was that if you add up the massive artillery, the Soviet shelling of Berlin, that they dropped as much explosive power on Berlin as we dropped on Hiroshima, for, for example. So this question of the inner psychology, so to speak of the reptile brain, how do we address the, how do we, how do we avoid permitting them to intimidate us? If, as you say, we, we surrender this first red line, you can't attack a nuclear power, and then we establish this new red line farther back, well, actually, you can't resist a nuclear power either. 
the game is over for the next century. I mean, China may have to do this, that, and but if fundamentally, if it becomes clear that the West will not resist a nuclear power, Iran will get nukes, North Korea is only just beginning the trouble it will cause, and China will have a free hand. We can't permit it. But there is this fear which is well-based, and I think harder for Americans to understand because this country never got, aside from Pearl Harbor, of course, but the Europeans truly remember what could go wrong, do they not? Um, I don't think the younger generation does, no. Oh, is that uh, so? It's actually it, forgot. It is forgotten. Well, I, I think so. I mean, I don't, I, I mean, the, the, there was a period in which uh, people in the West, and I think probably in what was then Eastern Europe, were worried um, of the existence of nuclear weapons that might be turned on them. But that didn't in the end happen. And so it doesn't have anything like the force of the memories that you are rightly describing. Um, but so I, 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 my feeling would be this, that on, on the narrow point about our attitude to our policies towards countries with nuclear weapons which might attack us or invade another country which is an ally. Um, I think that when people are not fighting, there has to be a statement, a restatement of the nuclear doctrine by the President of the United States, which makes it plain that we cannot accept the idea that a country with nuclear weapons can simply rampage and we will do nothing about it. We will, in fact, resist. And I'm not, and that, that may sound bloodthirsty to, uh, to some people, and many conservatives are very hostile to this kind of argument at the moment. I realize that. I don't dismiss their concerns, obviously. No sensible person wants. Um, uh, and the risk of a nuclear war. But the risk of a nuclear war is, go is, is there always, and it's probably more of a risk, more of a dangerous risk, if the other side thinks you'll do nothing. Because the time will come, if he thinks that, he'll go so far that you do something, and that point... There may be um, the front where you'll be in a weak position and and he may decide to risk using nuclear weapons. So I do not um, dismiss that. But we have to accept, we have to establish that deterrence means deterrence. And deterrence in this case is that nuclear power can deter a power from using nuclear weapons. It can't, the possession of nuclear weapons does not mean the right to rampage, which uh, to invade and, and conventionally destroy another country now so that would be my view now i also think though that the fear of the by the way i should say that the siege of budapest was every bit as terrible as the siege mm -hmm. of uh, the destruction of berlin and before that of stalingrad and so on people outside hungary do not always appreciate that but it does have um deep memories and and that explains i think in considerable measure the the fact that you know that uh, victor orban's current most frequently repeated remark is we are determined to protect the Hungarian people and the Hungarian economy. That's our policy. So, you know, that, that's something to be remembered. And, and I would say that he's expressing there the view of, of not only the Poles, but also the, the uh, Slovakians and the Czechs and so on. Now, um, does that mean we have no positive policy? I think not. I mean, first of all, we don't know what's going to happen in Russia. Uh, the Ukrainians may, I think, 
already have really inflicted a terrible wound on Russia. They, the Russians don't realize that yet, but frankly, with 16 days into a war, which was supposed, according to the Russians, to end in three, mm, um, right. there, there is um, no sign of a conclusive breakout. They may simply blow and, and bomb their way to, uh, to a, an, an end in which there's no organized fighting against them, but it will soon, if that happens, revive. So they have to consider seriously how they can leave this conflict without looking like a bloodthirsty monster who failed. And that's the big danger for them. They are facing a real crisis here. And um, the easiest way for them to deal with it would be to dispatch um, Vladimir Putin and put the blame on him. But um, the longer the war goes on, the more difficult that will be. And I think that's why at the moment we should, one of the things we should do is we should not become anti-Russian as such. It's very foolish right. to, yeah. to sort of tell the Russians we, we regard them as genocidal maniacs. We don't. We regard them as people who are being misled in a massive way. And I, for one, think that when all the facts are known, they will repent in a very, very serious way. I think that's what the Russians are like. They're not um, ill-natured people. They have great flaws, as all nations do, but they're not people who want to simply destroy everything in their path. Right. right. John, thank you. That was a tour de force, and I can't thank you enough. It was really, really fascinating. Um, <laughs> and it uh, makes, me, makes me eager to get back to Budapest to see... Uh, oh, well, so the, the, gentlemen, there's always a warm welcome for you. Uh, the, and I have to say, it is a warmest... It's a fantastic city. Yeah. It's a gorgeous, but it also is like super atmospheric. I mean, if you're walking across a wind, uh, right. a rain, and a rainy night, and a tram goes by, you, my God, good Lord, you feel like Joseph Cotton in The Third Man. Um, and also when it's sunny, there are a few places more beautiful, a few sides right. more beautiful. And to, to stand on the Margaret Street Bridge and, and look at the Parliament on the left side of the oh, river. And it's extraordinary. The, uh, the you can eat well, right. you can drink well, there's hipster bars, there's beautiful restaurants. Uh, it's quite a, quite a place. And, um, and thank you. So, uh, so when are you... Um, when are you coming back to New York? Because if you if you if we know your date, then maybe what I can do is I can I promise to buy you a nice dinner and some drinks, and we'll have a ricochet member meetup, and you can give us the uh, in person um, uh, uh, a voice from the front or the near front, oh, or oh, we hope it isn't the front, but well, <laughs> the next front. Much. I don't know when. August. Uh, oh, oh, my, oh, my wife shouts for this. Well, maybe we'll wait until then. We'll see you this up. summer. We'll yeah, see And I'm going to try and get over to the various coasts of America, too. Okay. Yes, Thanks, please. Everyone. Yes, Thanks. please. Thanks, John. All the best. Goodbye. Bye bye. Uh, that was fantastic. I mean, I know he's did, but it was one of those things where you. you um, you know, it's like a, a kind of the, the benefit of being in the ricochet community. You think to yourself, okay, um, who do we know? Who knows something? Who's there? And it's O'Sullivan who, who pops up like, you know, if I didn't know for a fact he wasn't, I would absolutely be convinced he's the, the most um, venerable spy in MI6. <laughs> Just if I didn't know for a fact, he was not. Um, but I do want to you get do together know with that, him. You, you know that for a fact. I think you? I know that for a fact. I do want to. I do think that it would be great. I wish wish it was coming sooner. It's, but I will definitely do it in, in August. But but there's got to be some way to say because look, here's the, maybe we should do no dumb questions with him soon. 
Um, yeah. If you are a member of Ricochet, you'll know what I'm talking about. And if you're not a member of Ricochet, you may know what I'm talking about. But the way to join these things is to become a member of Ricochet. We've got upcoming events. We've got new features. It is a great time to join. For instance, um, I, I, next week, historian, author, friend of Ricochet podcast, and a, a longtime friend of ours, Victor Davis Hansen. He is a guest for a No Dumb Questions with that is It's sort of a free-for-all um conversation uh between somebody and somebody else that you might want to you want to listen in on and you can ask questions you could join in on that conversation the idea of no dumb questions being um any, any questions okay the, the dumber the better everything's on on the table uh and he this is going to be a no dumb questions between victor davis hansen and our all other old friend former uh, national review publisher jack fowler who is this is a perfect perfect um uh, pairing. Uh, that is Tuesday, March 15th, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Bring your best questions, but only if you're a member. So if you're not a member, this is a perfect time for you to join. Uh, as you know, Victor is a sort of a I, I think you know, I'm gonna I'm I'm just gonna listen in because I think Victor is gonna provide slightly different, I think, a slightly different analysis from John's. I don't know, but it'll be interesting about Victor in Ukraine. Um but that's just one of the events and gatherings we have. There are a lot more. Here's another one to keep in mind. March 30th. This is an IRL one. Um, I believe very strongly, Peter, in these IRL meetings in real life, because I personally think that COVID is over. Former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker is going to join Ricochet editor Bethany Mandel and Andrew Gutman. They are doing a podcast called Take Back Our Schools, and they're going to record a live one with Scott Walker at the Young America's Foundation headquarters in West Virginia, which is just outside of D.C. Great. Um, March 30. Uh, if you're in the area, even if you're not in the area, come in. If you're a member, we want to see you there. These are just you know, this is next two weeks. It's going to be sort of busy. Also, we have our new Colin show on the Colin app, the Nightcap with John Gabriel. Um, you can get the Colin app. It's on uh, iOS and Android, um, and we're going to eventually will be integrated onto the site itself for members. Um, and um, so, join uh, the Colin show Nightcap. Every uh, weeknight, Mondays through Thursdays, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, and we're all having a competition right now for the best nightcap cocktail recipe. So you got to go to ricochet.com slash nightcap for more details. And you get a, a cool tumbler. I mean, or two or double old-fashioned glasses, I think. Um, Whoa, so there's bling? All things, yeah, yeah. You get some bling. So these are all things happening in the next three, four weeks. There are more things happening in April, more things happening in May. Um, it has never, never been a better time to join Ricochet. Uh, we have two missions in life. One is to create a great community. And the second is the smaller mission, which is to say, we're all getting together again in person like people. Uh, and we are going to lead the, lead the way and we want you to join us. So ricochet.com, um, please go and join. Do we have, are we to understand that Rob Long will decide the cocktail contest no. by, mi by mixing and sampling <laughs> each well, and every submitted recipe? I will, I'm going to chime in, Peter. I'm not going to, I'm right. not going to keep my thoughts to myself. So certainly I will chime in. Um, but no, I think that's going to be John Gabriel, editor-in-chief John Gabriel is going to decide. Oh, John is going to decide it. Yeah. All right. From what, I, All right. From, my, from what I understand. I'll start sucking up to John right now because I've <laughs> got a thought Did you submit one? myself. You know, I'm going to, I just found out there was a, there was a guy, I was about to call him a kid. He's no longer a kid, but he was a kid in the Reagan White House. He was a researcher. This is my old friend, John Dannerbeck. I have a story for you, by the way, and I'm coming okay. to that in a moment. But John Dannerbeck now lives in Arizona and he has his own tequila. He flies, it's his business. It's what he does now. He flies down to Mexico, which is where all real tequila comes from, I'm told. And it's 
oh my goodness, now I'm blanking. I haven't tried it yet. I just learned this the other day. It's Cosmo, Cosmos Tequila. Hold on, I'm typing. The, to, I want to make sure hmm. I, if, if I'm doing it. Tequila Comos, K-O-M-O-S. And, uh, and I have of late discovered the pleasures of a very simple drink. Tequila, a little bit of fresh lime juice. Hmm. And we have plenty of fresh limes out here in California this, right. these days, at this point in the spring. Overcrushed ice. And you sip that for a while, and you know, it's fine. Not bad. Uh, well, is that you know, too I, simple to submit to John? No, Gabriel? I don't think so at all. The simple, the better. Okay. I mean, I okay. personally don't do the tequila. I don't drink tequila or agave. This, this, you, you have to have some things you don't drink. I don't drink tequila, agave <laughs> for health reasons. I, mean, I don't drink vodka because I, yeah, you know, I'd rather drink gin. But um, I think those are the simple ones are the best. Also, lime juice. I mean, uh, the reason I would never drink that, aside from the fact that I don't drink tequila, is I couldn't resist make not making the most delicious daiquiri ever, which is just rum uh, and lime juice. Right, right. So good. Any um, other use of lime juice is not the best and highest used. I was going to say exactly right. That's right. right. Um, hey, listen, you're, you're about to do a plug and say goodbye to everybody, but I want right. to tell you a very brief story. Oh, yes. Night before last, Edith and I went to a PRI event, Pacific Research Institute. Pacific Research Institute, sure. spectacular organization. Sally Pipes runs it. And Edith and I are milling around, having a drink, chatting with... And several people march up. Our friend... Uh, Erica, how's Ricochet? Sure. With, uh, the, the, and and a, uh, I, I don't I don't know about using names here, but I'm going to. Marianne, Marianne loves Ricochet, and Marianne comes from Minneapolis, and she tells me that in the last. 500 and some episodes, she doesn't think she's missed a single episode of Ricochet. <laughs> now, wow. that's the good news. Yeah. The bad news is that she's a Minnesotan. And of uh, the lineup, the usual count. lineup of Long, Robinson, and Lilacs, I'm sorry to have to break it to you that Long and Robinson are not her faves. Yeah, Not that she say. dislikes us, but she I adores think James. I believe that might and then, be, um... and then and then Mrs. Cassidy, whose first name I couldn't read because her her her, her name tag was under her lapel. Mrs. Cass. So people yeah. do listen, Rob. I have to be they reminded do. of this from time to time, but people do listen. Well, That's John and Erica are old friends, so I mean, yes. I, 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 you yes. know, these are first names, and they're old friends, and they're old support, longtime supporters of Ricochet. Um, Such Ricochet delightful people, in, yeah. delightful people. Um, anyway. But it's always nice. I, I find people, some, you know, I, I've run into people on the street who like say, oh, I love their podcast. And then I, I have to ask them, which one? You know, because you never really know. And, um, and sometimes they're very huffy. Like, I, the ricochet one. I don't listen to the others. I'm, which, I'm not sure which one that is. Um, yeah, now look, like uh, 500, you do something 584 times, you know, maybe you, you're either really good at it or you're really bad at it. But in either case, you, you've done it. You're not, you know, you're not going to stop. Um, um, but speaking of stopping, we probably should stop now. This has been we a long, should. but I think a really good one. I'm, I'm really pleased that uh, we could, could connect with John because he uh, he just uh, the dose of sanity he gives you is always nice. Um, and from an um, incredibly, incredibly experienced perspective, um, I should say that on um, March, uh, I forgot to mention that March 16th. So that I is you'd never um, get to it. Yeah, that is the call in show uh, that you want to go to. So download the call in app um, on uh, iPhone or Android. Spelled uh, and call in C A L L I N. Call in all one word as in you know and and get uh, seven o'clock Eastern, four o'clock Pacific. John Gabriel's nightcap. His two guests will be 
our own Peter Robinson and David Sachs, who actually is the impresario CEO or whatever behind Colin. Founder, CEO. Founder, among other things. He's, he's, he's just, at this point, he, this is his third big invention. Um, David uh, is a genius, a, but don't yeah. tell him I said so. He doesn't you know, need to encourage me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he needs that. Uh, but he's also speaks, he also speaks very well about California politics. So that's, he's very yes, sort of he a, involved in California politics. Um, and that is the day on March 16 when the winner of the nightcap uh, contest will be announced. So there's this all the more reason to join us on Colin. Um, and tumblers are the prize. There really is a prize. They are. I think they're double. I think they're double old fashioned. So they're not the tall tumblers. Oh, okay. They're just they're, okay. they're okay. Uh, you know they're rocks glasses, which I think is slight, slightly more ricochet anyway. Of course. Um, and I think we should wrap. Peter, have a good weekend. I think so. I think so. James knows how to get out. You and I are enjoying right, this. So we'll so just narrow kind of away until lunch here all day. Exactly right. <laughs> All right. Okay, so before we do wrap, I got to say, Peter, that this podcast was brought to you by our new sponsor, Outer. That's the outdoor furniture. This sounds fantastic. Please support them by for supporting us uh, and join Ricochet today. Please take a minute to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That does actually really work and help us. It allows new listeners to discover us, helps us keep the show going. And of course, join Ricochet, and we will see you in the comments. Next week. Rob, next week. Take care. Hysteria, conditioned to respond to all the threats and the rhetorical speeches of the Soviet. Mr. Khrushchev said we will bury you. I don't subscribe to this point of view. Be such an ignorant thing to do if the Russians love their children too. How can I save my little boy from Oppenheimer's deadly toy? There is no monopoly of common sense on either side of the political fence. We share the same biology, regardless of ideology. Believe me when I say to you, I hope the Russians love their children too. Join the conversation.